0: Well, I trust you by this time know the theme of Philippians. What's the theme of Philippians? Rejoice in the gospel. I hope that just gets ingrained in you, like I know other books of the Bible have. I invite you to open to Philippians chapter four. So we're here on the home stretch of working through Philippians. It's be um, a sad day for me when we leave this book because it, it is very precious to me. And I've uh, appreciated it. Now, as you're turning there, I I want you to observe there are many different types of people in the church. Uh, Some are large. Some are smaller. Some are strong like me, right? And others are are weaker. Some are uh, young. Lots are young. And some are old. Some come from church backgrounds and some come from totally non-church, out-of-the-world backgrounds that they saved from. Some are well-off financially. Some struggle financially. Some are weak. Some are strong. Some are outgoing. And some are introverts. And as varied as the gifts are of the people in the church, so also, as people come to sermons, they they oftentimes come with a different perspective. Some people like theological preaching. Right? give me the depth. Give me... Give me the theological terms. Let, let me have it, Steve. And others, rather just like applicational preaching. Some like exegetical preaching. right? Finally, dividing the Hebrew and Greek words and the grammar. And some just want to hear stories. Some want to know just what to do. Some want to know why to do it. Some likes preaching that gets into real depth and some likes preaching that doesn't take very long at all out in 15 minutes. You're not going to get out in 15 minutes today. Well, this morning as we preach through Philippians 4, this is going to be for um, for those who just simply want to know what God wants of them. This is like uh, on the lowest shelf for all of us. Uh, in fact, we're going to be looking at these staccato commands. Verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 are just these just these, these short commands about what it is that God wants of us. In light of the Gospel, in the light of the great blessings of the Gospel, this is how we are to act. And rather than blitzing through all of these, I think in many regards they are, are one section, but rather than blitzing through them, I, I want to take some time. And we're just going to slow down. One, I, I could preach 4 through 9 in one message. But I, I want to just to savor each of these verses. We're going to take 4 and 5 this week. We'll take 6 and 7 next week. And we'll take 8 and 9 the next week. Just taking one point, just pounding it home that we might, might look at it. This morning, we're going to see just two commands, verses 4 and 5. The first command in verse 4 is to be joyful. And the first command there of verse 5, which is the second command, is, is to be Gentle. These are really the two applications of the text this morning. And, and if you understand these, joyful and gentle, you can really go home today because it's, it's, it's all done. Because God's call upon your life and my life is to be joyful and gentle. Joyful and gentle. That's why I've entitled my sermon, Joyful and Gentle. See if you can see these right here in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Well, I want, to, I want to pray and then we'll dig into these texts. Father, I pray that these simple words might somehow by Your Spirit penetrate deep within us. That we might, might see Your call upon our lives to be joyful people those who who conquer life in a in a happy encouraging joyful way i pray you teach us all the responsibility to be gentle and god that all of us would be gentle people as well god this is Your call upon our lives I, all i can do father is simply to open up these words and to press them to application and, and i pray god that you would be the one to work in the hearts of people as they go home, as they think about these things. God, dig it deep in the heart and do the work that only You can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well, let's look at the first one. Verse 4. Be joyful. As Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Now, last week, we looked at one specific, tiny application of this verse, and that was the, the rejoicing that we ought to have at the resurrection. We saw the women at the tomb. When they saw Jesus, they were full of fear and great joy. When they saw the empty tomb, rather, they didn't see Jesus. Well, they, didn't, they later saw Jesus, but in Matthew's account, they just saw the angel. And they were filled with joy at the resurrection of all that, that might be. When the disciples were actually in the presence of Jesus, they were, were filled with joy and amazement. And after Jesus ascended, the resurrected Christ ascended, they went to Jerusalem with joy, rejoicing at all that God had done. And when those at Sidney Antioch heard the message of the resurrection and came back the next week and realized that the risen Christ message came to them, they, they responded by rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And Peter called us to, to rejoice in God who has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of the dead. And he said later that in that resurrection and in that hope and in that salvation, you greatly rejoice. That all tied around the resurrection. I'm sure that we could pick many many themes of Scripture to do that with. But today what I want to do is take verse 4 and, and maybe broaden it out to get its full scope of, of application in terms of just our, our heart to be joyful. Because there are really many more ways, many more applications to rejoice. In fact, it says to rejoice always. So you give me a circumstance and I give you an application. You give me something happening in your life and I give you the application. It's really easy that we should rejoice. And, and when you think about the Bible, it's to be expected that there's lots of commands and lots of thoughts about rejoicing because the Bible tells the story of God's redeeming work in the world. It's a book filled with good news. That's what the gospel means, right? We need to rejoice in the good news, and the good news is Jesus Christ come, died for our sins, buried, raised again from the dead, demonstrated that to, to be so. And, and that's the book tells of how we fell, but God worked in us so as to redeem us from our sin. He sent His Son that we just might believe and trust in Christ and we can spend our eternity with Him. And so you think about think about the Bible... It's just a book of good news. So if you think it's a book of good news, there ought to be much rejoicing in it. Now, let not say everything in the Bible is so lovely because, quite frankly, a lot of it's ugly. Whether that's Abram who had a, a child out of wedlock or whether it's Moses who was a murderer or David who was both an adulterer and a murderer or it was the disciples who were faithless cowards. Even the great Apostle Paul was by self-proclamation a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. The Bible has a lot of, of dark points in it, but those sins recorded in the Bible only make the overall story that much more better, that much better because God has overcome these sins at the cross. And, and the fact that, yes, sinful men have been redeemed, that's, that's reason to rejoice. So you just think about your movie. I mean, I'm just thinking about some generic movie, right? Where the, the character comes in bad. So like take, take Heidi. It's totally off the top of my head. Heidi, right? The story of this, this guy in the in the mountains someplace and this girl comes along and he's a gruff, mean old man and then this girl comes along and changes him. That's a, it's like good news rejoicing. That's the message of the Bible. She takes sinful people And He changes them. He redeems them. And so there's much reason to joy. In fact, you might even put it this way. The Bible, the overall message, it's a a feel-good story. Yes, there are ups and downs, times of ugliness. When you come to the end, God's plan succeeded. He has redeemed His people. And those who have refused are judged. But those who have believed are redeemed and there's great rejoicing. And that's why the Bible is good news. And so we respect that it. if it's good news, there's much cause for rejoicing in the Bible. The Psalms are filled with examples of praise. I mean, I, I'm thinking maybe 40 verses I looked up, saw explicit uh, references to joy and rejoicing. I'll just pull out three examples for you. Psalm thirty-five verse nine and my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. Right? Rejoicing in God, exulting in his salvation. Everything that God is and has done for me. That psalmist is just saying. That's not a command, it's just a testimony. And there's lots of these. Psalm thirty-three, twenty-one. Our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. As we trust and believe, that leads our hearts to joy and rejoicing in Him. Another testimony Psalm 13, verse 5. I have trusted in your loving kindness, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I've placed my heart in your loving kindness, trust there, and therefore I am going to rejoice in the salvation that you have given to me. It, And those are just testimonies. We could go over many, many more of that. There's just reason to rejoice because the Bible's about God saving His people. And it's only right, right? Because when we trust in the Lord who made heavens and earth, we we have these promises that have come to us like Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If God's never going to leave us or forsake us, can't we rejoice in that? Or... Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Right. In other words, if, if God has given us Jesus His one and only Son, how is He going to withhold anything from us? But He's going to give us all things. And in that, there's just reason to rejoice in our salvation. Whether it's good times or bad times, we trust and rejoice in the Lord. And I would go so far as to say this, that if we aren't rejoicing, Something is intrinsically wrong with us. If you find there's a day or a time when you're not rejoicing, I say, what's wrong? What's wrong? Remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? He said this, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, he's saying this as I sinned and I haven't confessed it. I haven't made that right with the Lord. Something's not right. I'm not rejoicing the Lord. Rather, I'm I'm downcast. I'm depressed. I'm tired. I'm sluggish. And, and And David even says that your hand was heavy upon me. Consider that as opposed to after he repented in Psalm 51. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, right? I want to be joyful. I want to have gladness in my heart. And the bones which you have crushed, let those rejoice and let me be glad. Because David desperately wanted back his joy from the Lord that he lost. Psalm 51, it continues, right? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In our salvation, we have a joy before God. In David's sin, he, he suppressed that. He saw his own way and, and wasn't joyful. was sorrowful. And yet God, in His grace, He was saying, please God, rejoice to me the joy of the salvation that I once had before. And when you're not rejoicing, something is, is wrong. And I would suspect oftentimes it is sin in your life. Because when, when God saves us, He gives us joy. Do you know that? When God saves anybody, He gives us a joy. It's only right and proper for us to be joyful people. And if you doubt that, just think about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. What was that second one again? Love, joy. That is the fruit of the Spirit. When we believe in Jesus know his forgiveness of sins god's spirit comes to dwell in us and some of the fruit that comes out of our lives is a love towards other people and it is a a joy and a happiness that we have in other words god's working the working of god's spirit in your life will produce a joy filled life i put it like this a joyless christian is a sinful christian I mean, think about how fundamental joy is to the Christian life. Paul wrote in Romans fourteen seventeen, the Kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but the Kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the, the Kingdom of God is not about just the, the external things that are, that are eaten or done or, or the days that you keep in context of Revelation 14, but rather it's about the inner qualities of, of righteousness. Or this inner quality of peace that you have with God. Or this inner quality of joy. That's what the Kingdom of God is about. As God works His work in you. Notice here in verse 4 that God commands us to be joyful. He says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Just by the way, rejoice and joyful are the same word. Rejoice and joyful. They both refer to the same things and in English, it's just rejoice is the verb and joyful is the noun or joy is the noun. But we are commanded to rejoice and whenever we're not joyful, whenever we're not rejoicing, you can equally say that we're disobedient to God's command. Another name for disobedience is sin. and And, and this command here in verse 4 is... Is all over the Bible the call to rejoice, the, the, the command to rejoice and have joy is, is all over the Bible. Let's just, let's just think about the Old Testament, go to the Psalms again. Before I gave you some Psalms of testimony, now let me give you some Psalms of command. Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. If you're a righteous one, if you're a holy one, the call to you today is to be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. Psalm 48, verse 11, Mount, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. It's just, let us be glad and happy in God. Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing there is a call and a command to come into God's presence with joy and happiness and glad singing and and I could there are many many other psalms that speak the same way Psalm 37 verse 4 delight yourself in the Lord he'll give you the desires of your heart there's a, a joy in the Lord Jesus told us to rejoice on several occasions, explicitly, he told us to rejoice. Remember when the disciples went out and and the demons were subject to to them in, in Jesus' name? Jesus said, "This don't rejoice in this that your spirits that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in the book of heaven." So, in other words, right? Rejoice that that you're saved and your names are recorded before God. That you're secure. Rejoice in your salvation. Jesus told those who, not when things are going well, but when things are going bad, when you're being persecuted for the sake of Christ. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Be glad when they're persecuting you, because your reward in heaven is just increasing. Jesus commands us to rejoice. Or Paul commands us to rejoice. Romans 12 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Right there, if someone's rejoicing, and you see someone rejoicing, you are supposed to rejoice with them as well. That is a divine command. Right? And if they're, if they're sorrowing, you need to weep with them. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brethren, this is right at the end of 2 Corinthians. Rejoice! Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The command there is to rejoice. Be happy. Be glad. Okay, we've seen the Old Testament. We've seen Jesus St. Paul, let's even think about Revelation the last day when we're enjoying the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 says this, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Right? That's even at the culmination of history. It's gladness and rejoicing. And Jesus describes it, The Revelation John describes it, what He saw, the joy there will be just like the joy of the wedding feast. when. Our salvation is finally consummated, and Psalm 16 speaks of that day as well. It says, "In your presence is fullness of joy." I just just want that to sink in for us here for a moment. God commands us to be joyful. If we're not, we're sinful, and and the grumpy Christian is a sinful Christian. You know, and I, and I I just. be honest at Rock Valley Bible Church. One of the things I have worked hard to promote is um, is a happy church family, a, a place where it is it's just joy and happiness to come here. Um, how many of you saw our musical chairs game we played on Wednesday night with some of the teens? You guys see that video? Okay, I sent out the weekly word. How many liked that video? <laughs> that that's just kind of the. The fun and joy, we, we, we spent an hour in the Gospel of John. Andy taught that, and an hour in John, and then we spent some time just playing, playing together. That's why our kids are bringing frisbees to church, so they can play frisbee after church. Stephanie brought some stilts, maybe for some of you kids to try your hand at, all right? And just, I, I want kids to remember that, that the church was just a joyous, happy time. When, when, yes, we worship God together, and yes, we were serious, but there was a joy in that, and afterwards we just, we just enjoyed each other's company. I, I want church to be a little bit like a good family's holiday. Now, I'm not talking about a bad family where there's family tensions and things like that. I'm talking about a, a good family. Like last week was Easter, and I don't know what year Easter was like, but our Easter was wonderful. Our tradition in our family is to go to someone's house and we order pizza on Easter. Just to just to take that whole meal prep and just wipe it out, and we used to have pizza. And um, my my folks were in Arizona; they didn't see it, but I took pictures. We had all my brothers and sisters were there. Is that everyone was there, Avon? Yeah, everyone was there, and like all the cousins except for I don't know, maybe four or something like that. So all the cousins that means like 18 cousins, and a spouse was there, and so we had like. 40 people. I'm not sure. And so I took a picture of uh, of um, all the pizzas and I sent it to my dad. And I said, Well, I hope I hope we get enough to eat today. <laughs> Huge stack. But it was a great time. We played ultimate frisbee. We kind of sat around, talked. We caught up to date. We had some unsafe people come and join us. Kind of it always happens at our family gatherings. Just kind of, we pull some unsafe people in, and uh, just had a had a good time of just catching up and encouraging one another. That's that's my vision for church each week. Is it's like it's like a just a genuine joyous holiday where we just come and we enjoy one another's presence where the kids are off and playing games, where the adults sitting and talking and encouraging each other in the Lord. And It becomes a a joyous place not because it's entertaining. It's not because we put this big show on where everybody comes and likes the show and goes away and talks about the show. But it's it's where com- people come and say, Wow, they really love God and that's a genuine that's a genuine people there and they and, and boy, I really felt the love of God. That's why those who visit among us often have the testimony. It says, Boy, we've we've just been surrounded by people and felt with love because that's the atmosphere and that's the joy that we want to create. Church isn't about like rules and regulations, this do or that. Ch- church ought to be about a delight to come. In fact I would say that too often their churches are are not places of joy, because those who attend merely are attending out of some duty that they got to get their church thing done, and they go, okay, they come and they do their church thing, and then they, they just leave. And when people come to church out of duty, there's no joy. well, maybe there's religious experience, but, but there's not joy and fellowship and genuine harmony working together. But when you, you show me a, a church that gathers out of delight, and I will, share, I will show you a church that's filled with great joy. And I'll show you a church that has love all around and that has plenty to share with those from the world who come by. And, and that's, that's what I, I want and try hard to, to cultivate here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, one of the great hindrances to joy, one of the great hindrances of this verse, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice, is that people often think about joy as an uncontrolled emotion. Like, sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm sad. Sometimes I'm joyful and sometimes I'm not. Almost as if we're, we're not really in control of our emotions. Like something outside of us is controlling our emotions. And sometimes it will work and sometimes we'll be joyful like verse 4 says. And sometimes we won't. It just depends upon the particular circumstances that are around us. But Paul gives no room for such a perspective because he says rejoice in the Lord always Again, I will say, rejoice. And if he's saying "Always," that, that doesn't leave you to say, well, "Okay well, I'm joyful today, but tomorrow I'm not," no, this, it, it's always. you got to always be there? Oh, well, today's circumstances are good, so I'm joyful. And well, not, well, actually, today things aren't going so well. I'm not so joyful today. There, there's, there's no room for that at all. You might put it this way: Joy is a choice. You can choose to be joyful, or you can choose to be grumpy. now, there will be seasons of our life though okay where where things are difficult and i'm not i'm not I'm not denying that, and nor am i at, at all advocating uh, a fake smiley happy you guys ever been to fake smiley happy churches maybe maybe not peak churches, but maybe people you see hey how you doing? Good to see you in the Lord yeah, I'm just so good today. You can't sustain that. I'm talking about just genuine, real joy. Hey, you know, good to see you. How are you doing? You can sustain that, but you can't sustain some of this, this extrovert show. I think oftentimes it's put on at church. But and I'm thinking about there are seasons in life where, where things are just hard, and you you just you can't just put on this this fake whatever smile, and see everything go well. It's hard and when it is i want to encourage you to fight for your joy and psalm 42 is a is a great example of that you can just write it down the, the psalmist in psalm 42 was in despair he is far from the people of god being mocked in his faith he was in tears day and night really struggling and he was really struggling with God, really struggling with his feelings, his emotions. And, and as he remembered the, the days when he used to go along with a throng and lead them to the house of worship, when he was there with a the voice of joy and thanksgiving, with a multitude keeping festival, and he remembered the time when he was in the, the temple, but now he's not in that place and now he's sorrowful. He remembered the worship, but that weren't, wasn't his feelings now. And, and the psalmist, I want you to notice in Psalm 42, didn't just say, huh, well, that was then and this is now. Woe is me. Look at all these hard things. And that's now. Rather, what he does is he, he, he doesn't give in to his emotions. He, rather, what, what, what he does is he, he tries to push his soul into joy and happiness. Three times this verse is mentioned in 42 and once in 43, which are kind of twin psalms. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. He's saying, soul, why are you dismayed? Why are you having these, these sorrowful feelings? Let's hope in God. Let's remember God. Remember the joy. So soul, hope in God and be happy and to know that joy. Just notice that he's working hard To get out of the depression. He's not just woe is me. He's talking to himself. Biblical truth. And you might say this. Why are you downcast my soul? Think about what Christ has done for you. He has come and redeemed you. He has died for you. He's demonstrated His love for you. He's poured out His blood for you. That which the sacrifice of the Old Testament could never do, that He has done. And the promise of God is that He's given you His righteousness because He has taken your sin upon the cross. Don't be downcast, O oh soul. Right? It may be hard for this little time. I may be facing some of these difficult, sorrowful things that pull me down, but, but I've got a greater reality that's bigger than that. It's the, it's the picture of Christ crucified for my sins. Rejoice in that, O oh soul! And so I would encourage the church family to work hard, and fight for that. John Piper even calls that the fight for joy. You know, his monumental book was called Desiring God. He wrote a follow-up book. I'm not sure, maybe 15, 20 years later, called When I Don't Desire God. A subtitle is called How to Fight for Joy. Or the fight for joy or something like that. And what what, what Piper is saying is that, yes, desiring God is where we ought to be. We ought to have this happiness and delight in God. But quite frankly, there are times when we don't desire God. But in those times, what do you need to do? You need to fight for your joy in God. Because when you find your joy in God and you find Him to be your treasure and your delight, you will be happy. And you will be joyful. And you will be rejoicing. In fact, he would even say that Delight in God, joy in God is the essence of salvation. Because of, of these other psalms that I read about, how I will place my my I trusted in you, therefore my heart is glad. And so likewise, that when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, what we're saying is I'm finding more delight, more satisfaction, better in Him than in anything else of the world. And that's essentially what salvation is, is, and that's what what John Piper argues that Jesus is our treasure. He's our delight. First Peter. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do, do not see Him now, but you believe in Him. All of our situations, right? We haven't seen Him. We haven't seen Him now. But we believe in Him. It says this. He says, Because you do that, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That that Though we don't see Jesus, we have not seen Him in the flesh, we live 2,000 years later, but we love Him, and therefore, since we love Him and believe in Him and trust in Him, our joy follows. And Piper then says about this fight for joy, he says, one of the reasons today in the Western church our joy is so fragile and thin is that This truth is so little understood. The truth, namely, that eternal life is laid hold of only by a persevering fight for the joy of the faith. Joy will not be rugged and durable and deep through suffering where it is not resolved to fight for it. But today, by and large, there's a a devil-may-care cavalier superficial attitude toward the ongoing daily intensive personal joy in Christ because people do not believe that eternal life depends upon it. And I would say this, your eternal life depends upon your joy in God. Because that's the essence of faith. It's the essence of trusting in Him rather than trusting in the world, finding pleasures here. It's finding your pleasure in God. That's where Piper nails it. how about you? Are you seeking with all your heart to find your joy in the Lord? Is it important to you? Did you ever think about this? Do you ever make efforts like the psalmist did, right? When something comes into your life that's sorrowful, do you ever make efforts to, to change that? To work through that? To, to find your joy in God? You know, Psalm 4-7, listen to what the psalmist says. You, God, have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Here's a testimony. That's why... When when you fight, and in Piper's book about When I Don't Desire God, he talks about how, yes, you fight, but it really is a gift of God. This joy is. And and you need not, you can't conjure it up on your own. It's got to be the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life that's giving you joy. It's got to be God working in you. And the psalmist says, God, you've put more gladness, you put more gladness in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. And you think about just the. The the days when they had harvest back then, they didn't have refrigeration. So when when their harvest came in, they ate and ate and ate to the full. Those were the happiest times in life of the ancient world when the harvest came in. And the new wine, which makes them sweet and happy because they're drinking of the alcohol. He says, you know what? My joy in God far surpasses any joy that anyone can get when even the alcohol abounds. Because that's where our, our joy comes from God. And it far surpasses that of the world Oh, I love the fact that Paul practiced what he preached. He didn't just say, here it is. He, he did it. Think about the circumstances surrounding this letter. When he writes this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome. But he calls it imprisonment. As he writes, he's under the threat of death. Should the judgment of Caesar go against him? And As he writes, there are many people out there preaching Christ who are preaching from envy and strife, thinking that, that they're going to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. He's got all these things against him, and yet through it all, Paul's rejoicing. Many call Philippians the epistle of joy. He's joyful in chapter 1, praying for the Philippians with joy. He finds joy from those preaching Christ with envy and and strife when he says in chapter 1, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul in no way is downhearted circumstances have not gone his way. He's facing death and yet he's joyful. Now, this isn't something that just came about for him when he was writing from a prison in Rome. Think about when he visited Philippi for the first time through a misunderstanding. And he was falsely accused. He was thrown in prison. In fact, before he was thrown in prison, he was beaten with rods without a trial. Imagine, right, being beaten with hockey sticks. That's so, so what's happening, right? he got lacerations on his back. He's probably bleeding, probably bruised. And then he's placed in stocks where he can't like, move around to, to calm his discomfort. And, and a certain in all likelihood, the, the prison was a filthy prison. No latrines in those places. They just sat in their own refuse. It's a dirty, stinking, smelling place. He's bruised and beaten and, and bloody. And what's he doing? You remember Acts 16, verse 25? They were praying, Paul and Silas were praying and singing, hymn, singing hymns of praise to God. They were joyful. in praise. So, consider Paul's example. And now, let me ask you, why can't you rejoice in the Lord again? Why is that again? Tell me, why you can walk around like a grump when, when Paul... Facing just tremendous opposition, tremendous physical discomfort, tremendous sorrow, tremendous hurt, could rejoice in the Lord. You've not been accused falsely. Maybe you have. But you've not been beaten for your faith. I don't think you've been placed in stocks in a smelly dungeon somewhere. None of your circumstances bad as the Apostle Paul, and if he was rejoicing, I think you can rejoice. You say, Well, how in the world can Paul do that? Well, the key comes again here in verse four. This little phrase, in the Lord. He wasn't rejoicing in his circumstances, he was rejoicing in the Lord. And truth be told, that's the only way you'll ever be able to rejoice always. That's what Paul said in chapter three, verse one, same phrase. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the the Lord, and rejoicing in the Lord means rejoicing in the salvation that He's given, His kindness to us, rejoicing in the gospel. That's it's all part and parcel of the same thing. But the truth is this: that life life is fragile. And so, in other words, if you're waiting for life circumstances to change for the better before you rejoice, um, then you'll never have this attitude which Paul is speaking about. Paul doesn't say rejoice in life's circumstances. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. And I say this if you are rejoicing in the Lord, as God is faithful, we have no reason never to rejoice. Your rejoicing will never cease because his, his faithfulness is new every morning. Loving kindness is new every morning, his faithfulness is true every night. God is just full of loving kindness and faithfulness that he just continues to pour out. As you rejoice in the Lord, you'll have reasons to rejoice. God never changes. And you'll, you may have some sorrowful times. I, I think about Job. A tragedy struck his house in a matter of minutes. He lost all his servants, all his oxen, all his donkey, all his sheep, all his camels from people who came and stole them away. He, he lost all ten of his children when a wind came and crashed down on his house. Sometime later, he was struck with boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head and his, his wife said "Job do you still hold fast to your integrity curse god and die" and job says this you speak as one of those foolish women speaks shall we indeed accept good from god and not accept adversity see job kind of had it right there he says that god is on the throne right that song we sing in the good times and bad you are on the throne you are god alone that's what job was saying god is on the throne in the good times and bad he's still on the throne. Now, now Job wasn't this great model of rejoicing. You know the struggles that he was going through. But listen, he was he was struggling. He was like Asaph. He was trying to understand. He was pursuing God. He was maintaining his faith. And if you look hard enough, you can see a glimmer of joy. Chapter 6, 8 through 10. It says, "Oh that my request may come to pass." Job says, "That God would grant my longing would that God were willing to crush me, that He would loose His hand to cut me off. He says, oh, that God would kill me. He says, but this is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of my Holy One. So even, even through his sorrows, and even through his struggles, he still is finding joy that he has been faithful to God and struggling deeply to find this, this joy. Even when he was wanting to die, he would not it, denied the Lord. It's a glimmer of joy that he had there. When God calls us to rejoice always, sometimes it may be like Job, where we can only find our deepest joy in the Lord, not in our circumstances. Well, certainly more could be said about rejoicing, but we're going to tackle two verses this morning, not just one. We're going on to verse 5. Be joyful. Verse 4. Verse 5. Be gentle. The admonition goes like this in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. First off, we've got to deal with the meaning of this word gentle. What, is, what does that word mean? It's um, so a word not used very often in the New Testament. I counted just seven times that this word or a form of this word is used. Um, its meaning is difficult to convey. Uh, you can see this when you look at other Bible translations. The New American Standard that I have it uh, translates gentle spirit. In italics, so it's more, you're gentle, but you have the spirit of gentleness about you. Uh, the older New American Standard, pre 1995, when it was updated, translates it forbearing spirit, right? This enduring, long lasting spirit. The English Standard Version translates it reasonableness. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Old King James says, let your moderation be known to all men. The New King James, the NIB says, gentleness. So we, we see that theme. Um, William Barclay, the great Greek historian, said this. This is one of the most untranslatable words in the entire, of, of all the Greek words in the New Testament. Just difficult to translate. And so he did what I did. He went to various other translations. He didn't go to the modern translations. He went to older translations. He said this. Wycliffe translates it patience. And I just want you to listen for how it's translated because they're all, all kind of showing you the sphere of what this word means. Uh, Tyndale. Softness. In fact, we were in the car on the way translating gentleness, saying what I I told Yvonne. The surprise of this text was really the meaning of the word gentle. And Steffi instantly said, well, gentle just means you're soft, right? And that's how Tyndale translated it, a softness. That's how Cranmer translated it, a softness. The Geneva Bible, the patient mind. The Reims Bible, modesty. The revised version, forbearance or in the margin Gentleness. Moffitt translated forbearance. Weymouth, the forbearing spirit. The New English Bible, magnanimity. Or a paraphrase said this let all the world know that you will meet a man halfway. That, that, that kind of gets at it, an amic- amicableness. Is a peacefulness, gentleness. One commentator said this, it's difficult to translate with full connotation. Such words as gentle, yielding, kind, forbearing, and lenient are the best English attempts that we have, but no single word is adequate. Now, here's what I did. I, I say yes, it's difficult to translate, but there's no doubt it's the meaning. The, the meaning of this word is, is softness, patience, kindness, forbearance, reasonableness, moderation, kindness, yielding, leniency, as I have chosen, just because that's what the New American Standard does, gentle. Um, let me go back to William Barclay, because I think he opens up this word, gives you some pictures and illustrations of what it's it's about. And I remind you, you're all called to exhibit this. He said the ancient Greeks described this word as meaning justice and something better than justice. He said there are times when a perfectly just law becomes unjust. right? The law of unintended consequences, where you, you've got this law and it it doesn't. It doesn't quite work itself out. He said that this quality of the man with this gentleness knows how when not to apply the strict letter of the law to relax justice to introduce mercy, because there's a wisdom about this word. It's where you, you get you get the idea of fairness, moderation, yielding. And so Barclay gives this illustration. here's a. Uh, he taught theology. His theology was terrible, but he taught theology. But he said this. Let us take a simple example which meets every teacher almost every day. Here are two students. We correct their examination papers. We apply justice in that one gets an 80% and one is a 50%. But we go a little further. When we find out that the man who got 80% was able to do his work in ideal conditions with books, leisure, and peace to study, while the man who got 50% is from a poor home, has inadequate equipment, or has been ill, or maybe has come through some time of sorrow or strain. In justice, the man deserves 50%. But, this word will value his paper far more highly than justice would have. So, this word is illustrated in the dealing with Jesus and the adulterous woman. You remember that John chapter 8, she was brought before Jesus. Said so She was caught in the very act of adultery, Jesus. According to the strict letter of the law, she should have been stoned to death. So she was brought before Jesus. But according to this gentleness, Jesus went beyond justice to what was appropriate. and He said, He who's without sin, throw the first stone. That's what it's talking about. Just a, a kindness, a, a gentleness, a, 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 um, an equity, a fairness, dealing with people. Fairness, softness, reasonableness. That's, that's what God is calling. So let, Let's take the opposite of this word. I think the opposite of this word is a contentious woman spoken about in proverbs. The contentious woman, the, the one who's got to have everything exactly right all the time, willing to bring up past hurts to make her point. Wants everything to go her way, wants everything to be perfectly set. She wants what she wants and she won't give up until she gets it. And frankly, she's a pain in the neck. Because she doesn't know this this reasonableness or, or meeting you halfway. It's one translation say that's why the proverb says, "Better to live on the corner of a roof than a house shared with a contentious woman." Insisting on the justice rather rather a gentleness would be one who just accepts and embraces. So maybe this is where Paul is, is linking this a little bit in the context to Yodia and Syntyche. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago. They're having some sort of dispute. God said, or Paul said to them in verse two, "I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord." verse three summons this man true companion whoever he is to help these women right get together and live in harmony and in continuing to fight and quarrel these women were not displaying a gentle spirit and it's certainly it's a vast majority of cases when people are in conflict there's wrong on both sides Now there may be more wrong on one side more wrong but but wrong on both sides the gentle person will will come together and will give and will overlook the gentle person will let things flow. And I suspect Yodi and Syntyche were not. I think they're holding their ground, maintaining their position in the manner, wanting their way and wanting justice to be done. But rather, the gentle person will take a bit of injustice for the sake of peace. As Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. That's what the gentle one is. I mean, just think of a gentle father. Right? When the the, the son is out and he has stayed past curfew. I'm not talking about my son. Okay, okay. I'm not, really. But suppose the son is, is out, stayed past curfew, done some wrong things, and come. What does the gentle father do? Shows mercy and kindness. He doesn't come down hard. doesn't come down. But the, the gentle one is the one who shows compassion and grace and helps. Still may be firm, but still shows, shows some grace, but willing to... Willing to take a hit. So that's what Jesus illustrated. Gentleness, Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you, let him take your shirt. Let him have your coat also. Whoever forced you to go to one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Better to be wronged with mercy than to be right with justice. That's gentleness. Now, it's not to say that we should all roll over and just let everyone trample on us. There's a time to stand and stand firm and stand right. But remember that that our Lord, when, when He was crucified, He exhibited this gentleness. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return, while suffering yet or no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. Jesus Jesus took a wrong in order for a greater mercy and justice. That's gentleness. Or Philippians chapter two. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, also in Christ Jesus. I think this is getting at it too. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, right? The deity. He didn't, he didn't hold himself in, in glory in the Trinity. That's where I've got to stay. Instead, he, he emptied himself. He was willing to take a hit. And he emptied himself to take a form of a bondservant like us, being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I would say this. There's humility and gentleness there. The gentle one is a humble one. Jesus was silent before his shears, and, and I think that's where our next phrase here in verse 5 comes in, right? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Because if you are really gentle and if you will overlook transgressions, you you got you to put those transgressions someplace. You can't just bear them all. you got you to say, you know what, where where are those coming? I, I think that you have a bigger hope that the Lord will set things straight. Now, now, Paul sets forth here the nearness of God. I don't know exactly what that means. It might mean that God is near in proximity, ready to help us. It might mean that His coming is close at hand. Like it's often translated, like His return is near. I don't know exactly what it means here, but in some regards it doesn't matter because what it says is that God is close and that He knows what's happening And He will set everything right. So you don't need to worry about the little wrong done to you. Nothing escapes His notice. He will right all wrongs in the end. And knowing that the Lord is near will have a way of helping you be gentle with others because you know that God will deal with those things regarding future events. See, if you believe that there's a future judge in this world who will right all wrongs in the end... You you'll free yourself from anger and bitterness and self-revenge because you know vengeance is mine. I will repay," says the Lord, Romans twelve nineteen. But if you believe that God is not near or that God is just going to just forgive everybody, that He's not going to deal out His justice perfectly, then then you're going to feel this need that's that's got to right correct that wrongness, right? And your heart will be hard towards those who hurt you and you'll be rightfully angry and you rightfully desire for justice to prevail. But, but when you trust in the nearness of God, you, you can face some of these injustices which a gentle person will face. I've heard one man say it this way, soft eschatology makes hard people and a hard eschatology makes soft people. In other words, if you believe that God is going to come, He's going to establish things for sure, we can be soft because we know that God is going to take care of it. But if we are not sure that God is going to take care of things when He comes back, we will be hard because we're going to have to take care of it. And so I guess i just come back to you. Is gentleness in your life? When wrath comes against you, do you... Respond with a gentle answer. Gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs fifteen one. And let me remind you, the fruit of the spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What's that next one? Gentleness and self control. Now that word is a little different. Okay, it's not the same word, but they're synonyms for sure. Paul used them as synonyms in Second Corinthians ten one, I think. In other words, though, that that God creates, when people believe in Him, a gentleness in the lives of believers. Has God so worked in your life to give you a gentleness of life and character? Particularly maybe I'm speaking to the men. Men, we can be real hard, right? Our, Our job is to be strong. Our job is to be leaders. Is there a gentle side along with you as well? Can you picture, say, 9 11 or some some fireman going in? You know, he's got all his gear on, he's rough and he's strong. And what happens when he finds a baby? He picks it up very gently. And, and, and the media loves those pictures, right? Of the big, strong fireman showing his gentleness to, to bring out this baby that he has found in the burning building. It's not unmanly to be gentle. Amen. There's, there's an appropriate time to be strong, to be sure. But we need to be gentle as well. First Timothy three, Titus one, gentleness is required of an elder, a pastor, because if you try to lead, you're going to face things. You just need to respond rightly to people. Do you have it, or are you angry? You know, gentleness is on one side; anger is on the other. When when you're not willing to give. But you're going to push your own way. That's where anger comes. And when anger comes, you're saying, you know what? No, you need to have a gentle spirit, not an angry spirit. Are you argumentative? Are you pugnacious? That's the opposite of gentleness. Gentleness is not argumentative. Are, Are you contentious? Are you hard to deal with? Because the gentle one will be easy to deal with. How about this? What would those around you say? But those around you say, Oh, yeah, there's a gentleman. And they say, oh, I'm not sure of his gentleness. I remember at Kishwaukee Bible Church, I was seeking to be an elder. I, I, I praise the Lord for a man who came to me. And this, I was young, I was younger. Um, I forget how old I was, but a man came up and said, Steve, I, I, don't, I, I think of all these qualities. You really need to work on your gentleness. You're, you're not a gentleman. And I never thought of me like that, but it was like he smacked me in the face as wonderful for my soul. I don't think I have overcome that, but I think I've gone some way in that. But just to know that maybe you're in that situation as well, that someone needs to smack you, man, and say, you're not gentle. You need to come and and have that. Not be angry, argumentative, contentious, hard to deal with, but you're soft to deal with. Well, and it is important to know how others look. Look how he says it in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. In other words, your, your gentle spirit is known to everybody. When, when someone thinks of you, they think about, oh, he's got a gentle spirit. Everybody knows about that. And, and I think particularly, you see, well, are they angry? Are they argumentative? Are they contentious? That, that's how you let everybody know that that's just not who you are. You will bend for the sake of mercy. People will know and see, oh, you've been trounced and you've not responded in return. Where's a, a gentle man. Now, it's not that you let everyone know by sounding your trumpet like the Pharisees did before they gave. <laughs> look at what I'm giving to the church. It's not <laughs> look at how gentle I am. Look, at I've been wronged, but I'm not retaliating. I'm not retaliating against that guy. That's not how it works. You just, you just carry about your business and things will be obvious whether you're gentle or not. And, and here is the command. The command isn't just to be gentle. The command is to live in such a way that those people who look at you say, yes, you're a gentle person. People can see that you will drop a subject for the sake of peace rather than drilling it home. People see how you deal with others. so I wrap up, I just, I just want to ask this question. What kind of people do you want to be around? I find that I want to be around thankful, joyful, gentle people. If someone is harsh, and angry and grumpy, I mean, I can endure them for maybe five minutes, all right? But I just don't want to be around those people. But I'll say that when you are these character qualities, God will use you, and people will be attracted to you. Now, many of you women went to the um, uh, the women's conference this past this past weekend, um, and I just think I was talking with Yvonne about it a little bit. I'm familiar with Rosaria Butterfield's testimony of how she came to Christ. How'd she come to Christ? She came to Christ by being befriended by a pastor who was gentle and just loved her and brought her in and didn't didn't share the gospel for the first time or didn't invite her to church or didn't do all the things. But just he just brought her in and just said, let me let me understand about things. And they became friends, if you will. He had an agenda for sure, but but was waited till the opportune time to speak after he'd established some credibility in her life. And it that, that just grace and that gentleness, I think her testimony would say that was very attractive to her. And she was a very nice nice woman before then, but it was just the just gentle solidness of somebody who ultimately changed her. If so you want to be used by God, then, then be this. Be a joyful person despite circumstances. Be a gentle person who's going to receive and be gracious and be wronged. May the Lord use us mightily. Let's pray. Father, these two things are so easy. God, we can memorize these verses in a, a minute. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We have that memorized. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Lord, I pray that You would sink these things, though, deep into our heart. That You would build a body of believers here. That God would know this joy and that would know this contentment that is willing to be soft and gentle with other people. It's becoming of the Gospel. God, as You have saved us, and we know what we've been saved from, we rejoice in You. And God, as You have shown Your kindness and gentleness to us, we can be kind and gentle to others, knowing that You have things in control. So God, give us these character qualities in us. I pray You'd give us a, a mind this week to fight for our joy and to fight for our gentleness. And to be gracious and kind, God, to those whom we know and meet. I pray even in weeks to come, you'd help us to be prayerful and be thoughtful. God, that just Philippians 4 would become us, and that this would be true of us as we have looked at this passage for the last nine months, rejoicing in the Gospel. God, be be our help and our strength and our shield. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.